Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we, we thank you for your grace that you have given us so freely, that you've saved us by, and that you continue to give us to enable us to walk with you, to enable us to walk together with you. And Lord, if we were to take the time necessary to write our thanks to you, to write our praise to you, to put to words what your grace has accomplished in our lives, we may run out of ink and paper before we run out of words. So we... We take this moment and say thank you. And we ask you, God, that through your Holy Spirit, through your grace, that you would lead us to truth. That you would open our hearts. Lord, there's, there's so many things in a given week or day even that can harden our hearts to your word. So, Lord, I I ask that you would soften our hearts to your word. Help us to hear from you in humility as people who need you and need your word and not as people who have it all figured out. So we pray, Lord, that you would take this time and you would use it for your glory and for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mike Trout, Clayton Kershaw, Javier Baez, Bryce Harper, Chris Sale, Miguel Cabrera all have a couple things in common. They are all at the top of the MLB. They are some of the best baseball players actively playing. And they make a stupid amount of money doing it. They make more money than, than I think is, you know, they, they just swing a stick at a ball and they throw that ball and they catch that ball and they just make gobs of money. And, and the other thing they have in common is no matter how good they are, no matter how good they get, no matter how many dollars go into their bank account for being good at fielding a ball and hitting a ball, every spring they show up to a facility and someone who gets paid way less than them, someone who's not nearly as skilled as them, tells them how to throw a ball, catch a ball, and hit a ball. They all go to spring training and they do drills that they've been doing since they were in Little League. And they go there to work on the fundamentals. No matter how good they are, someone every spring tells them how to do the fundamentals. Even, even Mookie Betts, the, the, the MVP from the, from the Red Sox, had to go this spring and someone said, catch a ball like this. Throw a ball like that. Swing your bat this way. Move your foot a little to the side. And they go through the fundamentals. No matter how long they play, no matter how 
high of a level of achievement they get to, it all starts and ends with the basics, and Christianity is no different. It all goes back to the basics for us. Are you reading the Word? Are you praying? Are you just doing these daily things? And sometimes as Christians, we get so bogged down in peripheral issues. We get so bogged down in feelings. We get so bogged down with rumor mills. Sometimes we get bogged down with practices that are aimed at building a facade of righteousness. And in doing so, we just we miss really basic parts of walking with God. And we miss basic pleasures of walking with God. And in that way, it can become very harmful to us as individuals. It can be very harmful to each other as we try to walk with God in community. And it can become harmful to the glory of God as he's robbed of his glory because we get so caught up in the he said, she said. We get so caught up in what the latest author is saying, what the latest cultural trend is. And we, we miss the basics. We miss the fundamentals. And here in, in 1 John today, as we pick up in chapter 2, verse 7, John is affectionately urging the believers to get back to basics. And, and, and every word of that is true. There's so much affection as he writes to these people. But he's just telling them, get, just get back to the basics. Stick to the basics and you'll be okay. And today we're going to look at two basics that he urges them to get to. And the first one is he urges them, live together in the light. So much of what John has been saying has been focused on the light of Christ. Are we fleeing from that light? Are we running to that light? Are we responding to what that light exposes to, exposes to us? And, and this morning what we're looking at is he, he's saying this light has to do with how we live together. Let's read. First John, I'm going to read. Uh, 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Live in the light together. Now John starts out here and he, and he has this kind of weird way of saying it. I have an old commandment that's also a new commandment. And you need to keep it. And he never explicitly says what it is, but he talks about the application of it being loving and hating. And so, so keeping the commandment has to deal with love. And I think as we look in here and we, we study John, we look at his, his letter, we look at the gospel he wrote about Jesus, I think it becomes clear what the, what the old commandment is and the new commandment is. Jesus in his ministry was asked, hey, what's the most important commandment? And he said, well, the most important commandment is this. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets hang. 
Now, in John's Gospel, he never records that, but I think a lot of 1 John is John's exposition of that teaching of Jesus. A lot of 1 John is his teaching about what it means to love God and love people. And that the two are, you can't separate the two. They go together. They are conjoined. So that's the old commandment. So where's this new commandment? Well, the new commandment we get from John 13, when Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, and he says, a new commandment I give you. Now, the old commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. So love them the way you want to be loved. Love them like yourself. The new commandment is you should love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. So the old commandment is love each other to benefit them. The new commandment is in a very self-sacrificial way, love each other to benefit the other. Do you see the escalation there? It's not just love how you want to be loved, but it's love in a self-sacrificial way to build them up. That's the new commandment. Keep them both. So now what does this have to do with the light? John says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's why we keep these. The darkness is going away. As you get saved and you grow in Christ, over time there is less darkness and more light. And so that light should show Christ. It should show the one who is shining the light. And that's shown as we love each other as Christ has loved us. And so he says, whoever is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Why does John have to make this distinguishing mark? Well, he's writing to a group of believers. And if there's one thing the church is full of, it's peace and harmony with no conflict at all, right? Like, there's never, never anything wrong. Everyone always says, oh, Christians are the best. Like, they're, they're never hypocritical. They just love each other perfectly all the time. That's what I hear. I don't listen to anyone, apparently. Um, we never run out of opportunity for conflict. And in conflict, our light is tested. The light of Christ in community can sometimes feel like it's on a dimmer switch. Where it's up and down and it's up and down. And what John is saying is keep that up. And, and there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be opportunities because we are a room of people who sin regularly. And our sin, as we talked about last week, it never has a one-directional consequence. Every time we sin, it has this multi-directional consequence. It just goes out. And so you have a room of people sinning that's going out. And do we respond to that with love or with hate? The light of Christ should shine on our conflict. And our conflict is an opportunity for the light of Christ to shine even brighter. The light of Christ should influence our conflict. As we think of the light of Christ illuminating what's around us, and the Word of God being the lamp to our feet and the light to our path, 
then what does the light of Christ show when conflict arises? Well, it shows that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. It shows that we should be angry and not sin. We should not let the sun go down on our anger and therefore give Satan a foothold. It shows that we should forgive as Christ forgives us so we should forgive others. It shows that in Matthew 18, that if we have a conflict with a brother, we go straight to them about it. And if, it's, if the sin isn't being dealt with, we take two people. And if the sin isn't being dealt with, then we, we keep increasing until the sin is dealt with, always with the hope of that person being restored. Always with the hope of that relationship being made right. The light of Christ shows that it's a righteous thing to overlook an offense. And what John says here, he draws a very clear line. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The light of Christ does not allow for hate. The light of Christ is shown when love is chosen where hate was an option. When Christ said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another, he then said, by this they will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. As we love each other through conflict, the world watches that. And they see not just a group of people who get together on Sunday morning because they think they have to, but they see a group of people who comes together Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, all throughout the week, getting together to know God better. And when conflict arises, instead of hatred, instead of divisiveness, love is found, forgiveness is found, and the world says, well, that's different. And that's something I want to be a part of. It's something I need to be a part of. A community without condition. And we respond to conflict with love. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It gives us this picture of Christian love, gives us this picture of what it is to, you know, in the context of the spiritual gifts that Paul is writing, he says all of these need to be carried out with love, and this is what love should look like in the body of Christ, is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable, it is not resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Notice Paul's picture is that it's not without conflict, but it bears all things and endures all things. And so that as we look at 1 John, and John is writing to let them know what it looks like to abide in the light and love of Christ, there's a lot of how you know you're saved, how you know you're not saved. I just, I need to ask, is there someone you're not willing to forgive? 
Is there someone you avoid because you want nothing to do with them? And we may never call it hatred because we get too passive for that. Is there someone for whom you have disdain? I want nothing to do with them. Love is work. The enduring and the bearing of all things in love does not come easy. And we have competing voices for what this love looks like. We have in our culture right now the belief that to love someone is to fully endorse everything they say, do, and believe. And that's not love. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. And so there are times when we have to tell people that we are, whether we are in a discipleship relationship with them or they're just a friend of ours, there are times where we have to say, you know what, I, I don't believe what you believe. I don't believe that's true. I believe this is truth. And we point them to Scripture and we do it in a loving way, not out of bigotry, not out of judgmentalism, but just to lovingly say your greatest need is to walk with God through Christ. To continually point them to their Father. Not to endorse them, but to love them as a person because they are, after all, made in God's likeness. They are our neighbor. And we need to let our love for each other, and this is important, we need to let our love for each other be motivated by the one who shines his light and not the person you're loving. And this is something we get wrong in marriage, for example, a lot of times. We'll look at, we look in the Bible and we think, oh, what, what has to do with marriage? So we look for titles, the, the italicized subtitles that say marriage or husbands and wives. And we get to Ephesians 5. And it says husbands and wives. We're like, oh, this is where he starts talking about marriage. This is great. And we read about how wives should submit to their husbands as the church does to Christ and how husbands should lay themselves down as Christ did for the church and give themselves up for their wives as Christ did for the church. And so we make that our aim in marriage and that's not bad. But we, when we do that, when we just start where it says husbands and wives, we make it all about the person. I need to lay myself down for my wife. And if, if you do that and you make your wife the object, you're eventually going to get burnt out on that. But if you back up a little bit and you see submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and you think, well, I can't always do this because I'm so motivated by the greatness of my spouse, but I can do this out of reverence for Christ. Well, that changes it. If we love one another first and love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength second, Things are going to fall apart. There's a reason we love God first and people second. We love people because they are made in God's likeness. We love people because God told us, love your neighbor as yourself. And we do it out of obedience to God first and foremost. Because God is the immovable one. He's the one who's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. He's the one who's worthy of my suffering. He's the one who's worthy of being mistreated. And so we base it on Him. We let the light of Christ show us 
the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Show us the command to love our enemies. And when we abide in the light, he goes on to say, there's no cause for stumbling. But, and this is where it gets sad. This is where it gets sad. If we, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And he walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Back in 2015, there was a lady in North Carolina named Jewel. She's 21 years old. Jewel Shooping. And she had dreamed her whole life of being blind. And she had two perfectly healthy eyes, but was obsessed with the idea of being blind. That Her life would be complete when she was blind. And so she found a psychologist who agreed with her. And the psychologist poured a chemical on her eyes, which led to her being blind. And when believers, people who have walked into the light of Christ, when they choose hatred, they spiritually choose to blind themselves and say, I would rather stumble in spiritual darkness and sin instead of walking in the light of Christ. And so I ask again, is there someone you're unwilling to forgive? Is there someone you avoid? Because somewhere in your heart there's hatred for that person. Would you let the light of Christ shine on that? Would you deal with that sin? Would you walk in the light of Christ and not be willing to blind yourself? So John gives them the call back to basics. Love your neighbor as yourself. As Christ has loved us, love each other. And then he breaks out into a poem. A bit of a a song, if you will. And I don't know if it was a song or just a verbal poem. But this is what John says to him. Verse 12. I am writing to you little children because of your sins. You are, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you children Because you know the Father, I am writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John is telling them, know who you are. Know who you are. There's this... The best movie Disney has ever made is Lion King, and you will never change my mind. 
And, and Disney will never top The Lion King. I don't care how many Toy Stories they make, The Lion King is the best. Not the new one. No, no. The Lion King. The animated Lion King from my childhood. Best, best movie Disney has ever made, will ever make. And there's this scene where a grown-up Simba meets a crazy baboon named Rafiki. And he doesn't remember Rafiki. Because he was too young to remember Rafiki spreading some juice on him and holding him over his future prey. And Rafiki says, oh, your father is alive. I'll show you. And he shows him his reflection, says that's not him. And then the storm comes up and, and like the force Mufasa comes out. And he says, Simba, know who you are. And then Simba goes back, writes everything, right? There is a problem when we don't know who we are. And we succumb to fear, we succumb to defeat, we succumb to apathy. We've we continually, we, we take ourselves out of the kingdom work of God when we don't know who we are in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you were fundamentally changed at the soul level. And John is writing, know who you are. And so he starts out with children. And, and we see the three categories of children, fathers, and young men. And it's easy for us to think of this just generationally, but I think we also need to realize in the context of the larger letter, John's favorite title for these believers is little children. And so it, I believe it's safe to assume that when he says children, he's writing, this is everyone who's reading this letter because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you children because you know the Father. These are the two things he says about them. He says your, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You are saved by and for Jesus. He gave you life and you are now free to live it for him. Being saved, not for your name's sake, but for his name's sake, reminds us both of the method of our salvation and the aim of our lives once we are saved. We are saved for his name's sake, not for your personal comfort. But you are saved. And you know the Father. You are secure. You can put, if you're taking notes, you can write under children, saved and secure. Through Jesus... Through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, you know God. You've been adopted by the Father into his family. You can call him Father, and you have an inheritance waiting for you. You are saved. You are secure. And then he says to the fathers, this is the mature believers. And he says the same thing to them twice. Because you know him who is from the beginning. You know Jesus. You know God through Jesus. You join Paul in saying, everything is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. The maturity of these believers is marked by their knowledge of Jesus. That he's not just the one who came and died on the cross, but he is the one who was from the beginning. He is the ancient of days. We have in, in this church, 
We have on our elder board, we have in our staff believers who have this maturity where they know Jesus. They know Him from His Word. And it is such a pleasure to serve with them, to learn from them. And then He comes to the young men. This is all the younger believers. He says, you have overcome the evil one. The Word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Why does He need to say you have overcome the evil one twice? Why does he have to bookend it with that? There's some things we just need to hear more than once. There's such a temptation in us to live in fear. Oh, culture's rejecting our message. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Sometimes it feels like we're losing. The church is shrinking. In America, the church is shrinking. What are we going to do? And we can, if we're not careful, become chicken little running around yelling, the sky is falling. And there's nothing Satan would like more than for you to believe the lie that we're going to lose. Or for you to believe the lie that your sin still haunts you. And he says twice, you have overcome the evil one. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And if you're someone who you just feel, maybe you feel plagued by your past sin. And the evil one loves reminding you of your sin. Would you out loud tell him in those moments... I know I did those sins and I know those sins were paid for on the cross and I know that while you one day are thrown into the abyss of hell, I will be in heaven with my Savior. If He reminds you of your past, remind Him of His future. And know that the Word of God abides in you and never stop hiding it in your heart. You are saved not by negotiation, but by victory. Do not let that be lost on you. Death and Satan have been defeated. Satan would love to intimidate you. But he needs to be reminded of who is on the throne and who is in control. You are secure. God's word abides in you. And as we have this reminder in front of us in this poem... Would we also acknowledge that the fathers need to teach the young men and the young men need to learn from the fathers? And would we see that in our own church that we have generations not only of families worshiping together, but we have generations of believers and we need each other. You older men and women in the faith, My generation, the generation below me, the generation below them, we need to learn from you. Would you initiate relationships with us? And to my generation and the generations under me, would you take time to slow down, unclog your schedule, and find time with these older believers and learn God's Word from them and learn how to pray from them and learn how to budget from them, and learn how to care for your children from them. There's a lot they know that you need to know. 
when it really boils down here, there's a couple things that John has told us. These are the basics. Live in the love of Christ, constantly experiencing and extending it. Even in conflict, let the love of Christ be what shines, not your right to be right. And would you live the identity that Christ has given you? I, whenever I do premarital counseling with a couple, I, we talk a lot about the wedding day. We, we have to. It's unavoidable. It's coming. Let's, let's plan it. Let's schedule it. Let's make it special, but let's make it something that worships God. But I, I make one thing really clear. My biggest concern in premarital counseling is not the wedding day. It's that the last day of their marriage be when one of them goes to Jesus. The last day of your marriage should be when one of you dies. I'm much more concerned about the decades of marriage following that wedding day than whether or not the flowers are right. And so I, the advice I give them is not how to plan a killer date. If all you do in 30 years of marriage is plan one spectacular date, You probably did a few things wrong. But what we need, what what those marriages that last decades, and at the end of it, the two people still like each other? Because we've seen marriages that last, there's a 60th, 50th wedding anniversary, but they don't like each other. They'll eat cake next to each other, but they don't like each other. But the marriages that are 50, 60, 70 years, and they still like each other at the end of that? Daily, they serve each other in small ways. Let me get you a cup of coffee. Let me do the dishes. Let me fold your clothes for you. Let me say, I'm sorry. Let me offer forgiveness. It's the daily fundamentals that make that difference over the course of the decades. And it's no different for us with walking with Jesus. To love one another and to know who we are in Christ and live that out. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you that you have completely changed who we are, that you have made us new. And so we can have a new way of doing things. And we can love one another, that we can walk with one another with peace instead of with strife. And that we have a new identity to live out. That we are citizens of heaven first and foremost. And we have all the rights and privileges that come with being children of God. Thank you for making us your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.